Live from our nation's capital, it's the Inside Scoop with Mark Levine. Good afternoon, America. Welcome to the Inside Scoop. I'm your host, Mark Levine, a safe social distance from Washington, D.C., just across the river. Today, we have a very special show with a very special guest. We're basically analyzing the origins of Trumpism. We know where we are now, and it's a mess. It's amazing. We have people who support Donald Trump, even though he seems to not support everything Republicans used to stand for. Uh, They used to believe in low debt. Not anymore. They used to believe in free trade. Not anymore. They used to believe in the rule of law and the Constitution. Hardly. And they used to believe respecting the military. Even that seems to be gone. Where did the Republican Party go wrong? How did the party of Abraham Lincoln become the party first of Joe McCarthy, then Richard Nixon, then Newt Gingrich, then Donald Trump? How did we get from there to here? And is there any hope of going back to once was a very respectable American party. To help answer these, these questions, again, a very special guest we have today. His name is Julian Zelizer. He's the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University and a CNN political analyst. He's written books on the history of the United States since 1974, uh, a book on Lyndon Johnson that won the D.B. Hardiman Prize for the best book on Congress, called The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson Congress and the Battle for the Great Society. He's awarded fellowships from the New York Historical Society, the Russell Sage Foundation, the Guggenheim Foundation, and New America. And today we'll be discussing his newly released book, just out now, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party, which you can buy uh, at hardcover, audiobook, Kindle edition, Amazon, or at bookshop.org, which is an online bookstore with a mission to financially support local independent bookstores. With that introduction, Professor Zelzer, welcome to the Inside Scoop. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. May I call you Julian? Absolutely. Absolutely. A few, a few fewer syllables than uh, Professor Zelzer. So, Professor, uh, I love American history, and clearly you're an expert in it. Uh, where did the Republican Party go wrong? I guess... I would start to trace it to Joe McCarthy era, and of course there's a direct line from Joe McCarthy to Donald Trump through his uh, pretty despicable lawyer, Roy Cohn, who was uh, kind of a McCarthy protege and then a Donald Trump mentor. Um, is that where you think they started to go wrong before Gingrich, before Nixon? Was it Joe McCarthy? Uh, what do you think? Well, there's, there's strands of problem that you see. So one is in the 1950s when Uh, early 1950s, when Joe McCarthy is leveling his anti-communist attacks and gains some standing nationally before being pushed back. There's 1964, where Barry Goldwater introduces a pretty far rightward agenda for the party and and becomes the nominee for the party, though he loses to Lyndon Johnson. And then there's Richard Nixon, who in 68 and 72 really pioneers this law and order silent majority kind of strategy um, that is still used today. We've heard it recently uh, with President Trump's appeal to suburban uh, housewives uh, and and other elements of of his rhetoric. 
But for me, it kind of comes together in the 1980s after Reagan's the president and after you have a new cohort of Republicans like Gingrich who take all of what we're talking about and bring it right into the leadership of the party and, and make a new kind of partisanship the norm for Republican leaders. So in Joe McCarthy's time, um, he did achieve for a period of a few years uh, quite a lot of power, blacklisted thousands of people. Uh, he had his house on American activities. But ultimately, he was beaten down by the Republican establishment, really, by by President Dwight Eisenhower, uh, and sort of died in ignominy. Uh, and, and you know, uh, so he was sort of beaten down. And then Barry Goldwater, as you mentioned, lost in a landslide to Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Richard Nixon, the Southern strategy, really creatively stole the issue of uh, white supremacy and racism away from the Democrats, who, after all, were the kings of white supremacy and, and racism prior to the 1960s. Uh, they, they were the party of the Ku Klux Klan, the party of the Confederacy. And he grabs that issue and runs with it. And um, I guess after seeing George Wallace do so well as a third party, um, what is it then that Gingrich took from Richard Nixon? How did he make it even more, I don't know, palatable to to support these these ideals that well, much of the country rejected in the 1960s. I think uh, Gingrich was really a Republican who he comes in office in 1979, and he basically argues that Republicans have to take away all the guardrails. That when you're fighting uh, for control, partisanship has to be the priority, and it has to be a kind of partisanship where anything is permissible. Almost anyone should be part of your coalition if they're willing to join. And the party has to be willing to literally do whatever is necessary uh, to win. And it was a kind of uh, really pretty ruthless partisanship in terms of destroying your opponent or destroying basic processes of government in pursuit of Republican power that he brings to the table, not just as a kind of political bomb thrower on the sides in some ways what McCarthy ends up being, but ultimately is one of the leaders, the leader of, of the congressional wing of the Republican Party. So uh, it's his vision of partisanship in the 1980s, which we still see play out today, that puts together all the things you've been talking about and makes it a normal part of Republican Party politics, pushing aside the rest. So Gingrich is the one who basically uh, takes these, these Republican principles and brings it to sort of a no holds barred kind of kind of way. Explain to us how he did this. I mean, I I was young then, but I remember he he used to speak to the empty chamber of the House of Representatives at length, knowing that C-SPAN didn't move their cameras, and so it looked like he was addressing a large audience uh, when there were maybe three people in the room. Uh, but that's while tricky, not and a little little deceptive. It's not you know breaking huge norms. What is it that Gingrich did? that led us to the Republican Party we have today, where Trump can say or do anything. He can pardon someone he's been in, accused of a conspiracy with. He can uh, send federal troops into Portland beating up an American Marine. He can be fine with Russia killing, paying people to kill American soldiers, and Republicans don't even bat an eye anymore on principles that I think at least even Ronald Reagan would be turning over in his grave. How did Gingrich get us from, from there to here? Well, part of it is rhetoric, and, and he is uh, a politician who would tell Republicans all the time that it's okay to say whatever you want to say about your opponent. So in those famous speeches 
that he was doing in front of an empty chamber where no one was there, what he was doing, he was attacking Democrats essentially as unpatriotic, that they didn't care about defending the nation, they didn't care about fighting communism. And he went further because he was attacking specific people. And he would ask them if they had any response. And when the chamber was empty, of course, they didn't respond. But if you were watching, you thought that the Democrats, in fact, basically agreed or had no good comeback to what he was saying. He attacked Democrats all the time for being just fundamentally corrupt, almost criminal. A lot of my book revolves around his taking down the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, uh, through these kinds of attacks. And, and I have in the end of my book a memo in 1990 where he says to Republicans, if you want to speak like Newt, these are the words you have to use when you're speaking about Democrats. They're sick, they're radical, they're corrupt, they're traitorous. And he encouraged this kind of rhetoric, which we see uh, all the time today. He was also willing to do things like threatening sh to shut down the budget um, and, uh, and to use kind of procedures like raising the debt limit, normal things Congress has to do. And he said, let's create a sense of crisis by using these as leverage against Democrats. So like the old boy that cries wolf, uh, he cries corruption, he cries uh, crisis. And then we have a president who actually brings real corruption, real crisis, real criminality. I mean, doing things that Richard Nixon wouldn't have dreamed of doing, uh, far more corrupt than Nixon. And it's like we don't notice it because Wolf's been cried too many times. Is that is that what's going on? To some extent, there's a numbing process, but it's also partisanship. If ultimately you argue partisanship is your priority, for many Republicans, the logic is you can do whatever you want and nothing breaks that partisan bond. And we see that all the time, certainly with congressional Republicans, but also with voters today who accept as the status quo anything that President Trump does as legitimate or somehow tolerable. So I want to understand, and we are hitting up on the real break. Sorry about that mistake earlier. Uh, but I want to understand, I get why a politician might sell their soul. Mary Trump writes about this very well, about how someone close to Trump's orbit gets an advantage by selling out. But why do his supporters sell out? I want to explore that right after the break. And now, the voice of reason in an unreasonable world, Mark Levine. Welcome back to the Inside Scoop. I'm your host, Mark Levine. As you look around us, 150,000 Americans dying of COVID that didn't need to die. We know from comparing to other countries, and frankly, the future is bleak. The economy, the, the gross domestic product went down almost 10%, the largest ever since the Great Depression. Uh, we've got, um, uh, we do have a Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, who's way ahead in the polls, but there's a solid 35, dare I say, maybe even 40% of Americans for whom Trump can do no wrong. Even though on communism and Russia, he's kind of the inverse of Ronald Reagan. On the debt, which the Tea Party used to say was very important to them, he's run it up like no one has done really since, since World War II or before. Um, what is it that drives the Trumpist? I, I, and my guest is Professor Julian Zelzer of Princeton, who's written a wonderful book on Newt Gingrich and many other books on the topic. Professor, I've looked at at least the book reviews of Mary Trump's book, and I understand why people in Trump's orbit sell out to him, right? You think you're going to be close to the system of power. You think you're going to be secretary of who knows what. You're going to, you think you're going to make money doing business with him. 
you sell your soul to get an advantage. I actually understand that. That's logical to me. I don't like it, but I get it. But what about the guy in Oklahoma who's attending a Tulsa rally, who may be struggling to survive and goes to the rally, risks his health and his life, Herman Cain just died of COVID, to support Donald Trump, this New York billionaire who has very little in common with a white collar, uh, with a blue collar worker from, uh, from Oklahoma. What's their motivation? Is it, what's, I mean, I get racism. Is that it? Is it bigger than that? I think there's different uh, motivations. So I think one for some is strategic. I do think there's some voters who believe that the Trump administration gives them enough of what they want, whether uh, it's uh, upper class Americans seeking tax cuts and that kind of relief, or whether it's evangelicals seeking court picks, that they're willing to live with the rest of it, even the extreme elements. I think, too, you have ideologically driven voters who uh, have adopted pure partisanship, where it doesn't really matter who the leader is or what they do. You are a Republican through and through. And when you're thinking that way, it allows you to tolerate um, pretty extreme and even dangerous behavior. And finally, I think we live in a media ecosystem right now, which is much stronger on the right that's pretty dangerous because it, it takes that mindset and it then funnels uh, all kinds of information and supporting data and images that a lot of Americans, average Americans see and watch. And you know, if you put all those together, I think that 35 to 40% kind of doesn't make sense, but you can see where it comes from. So folks uh, remember Donald Trump, his first big foray into politics was accusing Barack Obama of having been born in Kenya, um, something that anyone with half a brain could see was a ridiculous lie, not even a close one. He's moved from there now to pr promoting untested drugs, uh, suggesting injecting bleach, uh, and uh, accusing, uh, what was it, Ted Cruz's father of maybe killing Kennedy. I mean, whack. I mean, this is the kind of stuff even Alex Jones, the the, the great uh, wacko conspiracy theorist who admitted in a court proceeding that it was all just an act. He just does it to, to get ratings. He realizes that what he's saying is lies. Believing these conspiracy theories. I mean, I, I have to go back. I'm sorry, but I, you know, to the Nazis where people just believed in, you know, wild conspiracy theories. I, I don't know. I, I don't. Even McCarthy accusing the, the U.S. government of being full of communists, it seems to me, had more weight and possibility than some of these crazy things. Have they, there's just no logical sense here? Well, he's testing that. I think that's what the thing is about President Trump. He, he takes these elements of the party that we talk about. He sees how far can you go? How much can you say? How many pieces of disinformation or outright lies can you throw out there? And people will either believe you or people will be okay with you saying that. I think both are at work with a lot of his supporters. Uh, but it's a dangerous place because he's not just saying this as a, a, a show host or he's not just saying it as a pundit. He's saying it as the president of the United States in the middle of a pandemic. We are hearing disinformation about what's needed. Until recently, he was dismissing face masks, uh, which every expert is saying is just a basic thing that we need to do. Uh, so it says a lot about the voters. And uh, I think, you know, if he keeps testing them and 
the results of the test are pretty clear. Uh, again, not everyone does everything that he says, but just as important, they still support him despite what he's saying. So as a Virginia delegate, I talk a lot with my fellow delegates, including Republican delegates and uh, senators. They don't believe him. These are elected Republicans who will maybe not say publicly what they tell me privately, but they consider him to be not completely stable. Uh, sure, they disagree with me on guns and abortion and things like that, and they might like his judicial picks, and but um, they get it. I, I guess it's, I don't know, the MAGA hat people, it's its this idea, I, I, he just promoted a doctor that said that something about having sex with demons caused this disease. I mean, I, I just don't know how far they can go. I, I look at Jim Jones supporters who drank the Kool-Aid that killed them, and they believed in him, but he was a charismatic guy promising them, I don't know, a future in heaven. It struck me that he was more believable than yeah. Donald Trump. Do, do people actually believe this nonsense or do they just sort of suspend disbelief on the grounds that, you know, I hate the liberals and, and, and he's my guy? Well, I don't know if they believe every part, but they tolerate it. And that's what matters. And, and it matters as much if voters say, well, he's saying all this stuff, but it doesn't really matter. He's my president. This is my party. Uh, but it also matters that those Virginia delegates or the Republicans who quietly say this is really, you know, dangerous or uh, it's unacceptable, they don't say anything. They're not out there telling their own voters this is not tolerable. And it's the silence of the Republican Party that he capitalizes on. Because if most of the party leaders are going along with what he says, and at worst, they just shrug their heads when he says something like that, uh, then they're culpable. Uh, it, it's the party of Trump. Trump's part is the head of the Republican Party. It's all one big uh, kind of mishmash. Uh, yeah, so it's not surprising a lot of voters in the party say, well, this must be OK. When he was nominated, of course, Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and others said, uh, you know, very strong negative words about him. I think they, they have immediate amnesia now. I, my question for you, did Newt Gingrich begin this idea of Switch your positions. Positions don't matter. Uh, you know, integrity doesn't matter. We need to all fall in line and agree with one another. Is, is that from the Gingrich era? That was essential to everything he did. Uh, in fact, before he wins office, he's at a meeting of conservative activists in 1975 that's training up and coming Republicans. A guy named Paul Weirich ran this camp for Republican candidates. And Gingrich, who was just a student, basically convinces everyone in the room of that. that the most important thing is that all Republicans are on the same page, that we have one message, and that we have a narrative that will work. And throughout his career, he always comes back to that. And within that, he's pretty flexible and, and often inconsistent in terms of what he will stand for. And that's pure partisanship. Uh, and what's remarkable at the Republican versus the Democratic Party is how far they have taken a dive into that mentality in the last three decades, Gingrich, uh, since Gingrich, compared to where the Democrats are. They're not nearly as extreme. They're much more divided. They're much more uh, distraught when they have to use these kinds of tactics. But that is what Gingrich promoted. And Got he it. promoted the idea. Have to go one more break. So if you don't mind, we'll be right back right after this. Never confuse Mark Levine with right-winger Mark Levin. The second E stands for empathy, which the other Mark lacks. 
Welcome back to the Inside Scoop. I am your host, Mark Levine. We have a very special guest, Professor Julian Zelizer of Princeton University. Uh, he has written books on Lyndon Johnson, a great historian. Uh, and his current book uh, is called Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. You can buy the book on Amazon, but also at independent bookstores like bookshop.org, as well as hardcover, audiobook, and Kindle. Uh, and what Professor Zelizer is reminding us is that Trumpism didn't come from nowhere. Donald Trump is a uniquely in, <laughs> uh, incompetent president of the United States. He is uniquely in, uninterested in public policy. I would argue he's the apotheosis of where the Republican Party has slowly been descending for about 50 years or so, uh, and or actually more like 70 now. What they've done is they've prioritized partisan loyalty over logic, over even the goals they claim to believe in. Evangelical Christians uh, who were so upset over what Bill Clinton did with Monica Lewinsky seem to be okay with what Donald Trump has done. He's been accused of, I forget how many dozens of separate sexual assaults and walking in on girls naked and, and paying off porn stars and things that evangelicals you think would care a lot about. Uh, again, whether it's Tea Partiers that used to say they cared about the debt, whether it's hardcore anti-communists that, like Ronald Reagan, believe Russia to be the evil empire, all of it goes aside, and we're trying to figure out how the Republican Party got from a party that believed in principles to a party that just believed in prompt propping up itself. So Newt Gingrich was a very important role in that. And I guess I want to ask you, Julian, um, in terms of getting from here to there, it was this enforced loyalty is, telling Republicans, I, I guess it was Ronald Reagan said 11th Amendment, right? Don't speak ill of a, favor, of a fellow Republican. Um, this dates back to McCarthy times when Republicans weren't willing to tell Joe McCarthy off. Is there something in the Republican Party that says we're going to follow the line more than the Democrats who, uh, I guess, uh, Will Rogers famously said, I'm not a member of any organized party. I'm a Democrat. We're constantly disagreeing with each other. What makes the Republican Party fall into line, even when they know individually something's not quite right? Well, I mean, one important element is that uh, the danger of extreme partisanship is ultimately government becomes dysfunctional. Uh, it doesn't work. You can't govern. And for Republicans post Reagan, that's OK. It's a party that fundamentally is comfortable with a dysfunctional government. The principal argument they make, though they're not consistent, is that government is not a good thing. And in the hardest areas of life, such as the social safety net, they're willing to live with the Congress, for example, that can't make decisions. Uh, so I think that's a basic part of the Republican DNA uh, that allows them to go far uh, more extreme in their partisanship than Democrats will ever be comfortable doing. And it has also been a very ideologically driven party. And over the last few decades, the party has really shifted very far to the right, uh, much more so than Democrats have shifted as a whole to the left. And when you're ideologically driven, when you don't care about the impact of your politics on government, that's the brew that we are seeing front and center with Trump and the Senator McConnells of the world. 
One of the things I find really interesting when talking with Republicans is they, they, they hate the idea of the welfare state. They hate the idea of people mooching off the government. They, they're fighting right now to say that people out of work should only get $200 rather than $600 a month. And yet, when you mention to them how they're getting advantages, if they're a farmer, oh, they want to be self-assured, but they get farm subsidies, they get Social Security, they get Medicare. If they're rich, they get special tax breaks for the rich, special deregulations and loopholes. It seems like the, the benefits that accrue to them, they never notice. They just notice, oh, you know, that that poor black mother and we think she should have the baby because we're opposed to abortion. Uh, but she's poor and she's black and she's getting some ten dollars uh, a week to feed her children. That's too much. Uh, but uh, yeah, give a give a trillion dollars to people who have a complicated real estate uh, tax loophole. How does that dissonance work where the red states? get a lot more welfare than the blue states, right? Money flows from New York and New Jersey down to Mississippi. Is it just they don't know or they don't want to know? I think they know. I think this is this inconsistency, hypocrisy, whatever you want to call it, it's not a secret. It's been discussed. It's been highlighted. But each time the party moves forward and it ignores that. And a lot of Republican Party politics tends to benefit from elements of government that are much easier to get, whether it's huge amounts of defense spending, big subsidies for elderly Americans. Uh, and a lot of them are not as dependent on some of these other social safety net programs that are much more contentious, where the beneficiaries are more vulnerable. Uh, and that's where our debates usually focus on, when really we're missing huge parts of the government. I think Republicans are just willing to live with that and they don't really care. Uh, and I think this has been a part of the post-Reagan era of the GOP. Okay, but explain this to me. So defense spending, that was something Republicans love. The military, Republicans are always praising the military. A week ago, maybe two, in Portland, Oregon, a Marine goes up to talk to the federal police. Yep. They beat him. He's being, he's just standing there. They break his arm. They pepper spray him for going up to chat with him. This is a Marine. We have Russia putting a bounty on American soldiers. Uh, the Republicans used to claim to really care about the military. You'd think that was a line that couldn't be crossed. Is the answer that any line can be crossed? Why, yeah. is it, why are people in the military speaking out about this? Any line can be crossed. I, I can think of other precedents, though. Remember, in 2004, the Bush, Bush campaign went after John Kerry, who actually served in the military, and they swift-boated him, uh, attacking his criticism of the war in Vietnam or attacking and suggesting he wasn't deserving of his awards. And there, in the middle of our post-9-11 moment, George W. Bush, who wasn't in the service, actually launched that attack. So you've seen some of this. Again, with, with President Trump, it becomes more extreme, more explicit. The silent parts are said out loud. Uh, and I think that's what's, what's playing out. But the party is more than willing to go there. And I think people have to recognize that. The, even the loyalty to the military only goes so far. When it's not in the interests of those in power, they're willing to go after veterans. They're willing to go after military officials. So help me understand how a veteran who's from Tulsa, Oklahoma, this very red state, uh, and who believes in the military and believe he likes his guns, so so that's going to be an issue for him. Uh, 
sees what's going on in Portland, is it that he's watching Fox News and he just it's sort of a racist thought that, oh, those protesters are fighting for black people. They're not on my side. Uh, the Marines shouldn't have have stopped the police from doing what they're doing. What, and then he attends a rally that that actually sacrifice that could harm his life and his, that of his family. What what's going on in, in their mind to to give up this this capacity for for logical thought? Well, look, I think they're balancing different arguments in their mind. This argument about law and order and the perceived anarchy in the streets to them is more important. Uh, than what happens to one fellow veteran. Or they dehumanize the veteran. At some level, that's what you have with extreme partisanship. You don't see them as a veteran anymore. Somehow they're radical leftists uh, on the street. Uh, as the women who are protesting in cities like Portland, moms uh, are often portrayed. They're peaceful protesters, they're mothers, but all of a sudden they're turned into wild, violent anarchists in the rhetoric of the right. Uh, and I think that's what happens. And, and you do kind of lose perspective and you lose loyalty to uh, people you should be kind of in solidarity with rather than in opposition to. How much of this is attributable to Fox News? Uh, here you have, ironically, an Australian, now American, but talk about foreign influence. Uh, basically, the one news channel of any size that appeals to to this far right. I, I mean, there's some tiny ones that. Um, how, how much of it has to do with Fox News, and is there any relationship from Gingrich through Fox News to Trump today? Well, Gingrich comes before Fox News, and I think Fox News, right. created by Roger Ailes, in many ways replicated the kind of partisan rhetoric that Gingrich had introduced and legitimized in the mainstream media and on the streets of Capitol Hill. But now Fox News is a massive operation that continues to replicate these kinds of narratives. And I think it has a huge hold on red state America that should not be discounted at all. I think it's a big part, as is social media, to be honest, where it's very hard to filter information before it reaches a mass audience. Okay, we're going to take one last break. But when we come back, uh, Professor, I want to ask you sort of the ultimate question, and that is a way out. How do you de-cultist someone? How do you make someone, encourage someone to listen to something other than Fox News, to break away from their friends on Facebook, to suggest that, hey, um, this rhetoric will kill you? How do you get people no longer to drink the Kool-Aid? It's a tough question, and I'm going to have it for you when we come back. Back to the Aggressive Progressive, Mark Levine. Welcome back to the Inside Scoop. I'm your host, Mark Levine. My guest today is Professor Julian Zelizer of Princeton University, author of several uh, American history books. And right now, his new book has just come out, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Trumpism is not about Donald Trump. It really isn't. It far predates him. Gingrich was a major way to get us from Joe McCarthy through to Donald Trump. And we're talking with Professor Zelzer about well, how we got here. Uh, by the way, if you like to go outside and run, you might want to get Burning Down the House on your audiobook and uh, just listen to it as, as we go along. Professor, I, I want to play for you a clip uh, of Donald Trump, just a day or two old, uh, talking about the Russian bounty on American soldiers. Let's play the clip. It's been widely reported that the U.S. has intelligence indicating that Russia paid bounties 
or offered to pay bounties to Taliban fighters to kill American right. soldiers. Right. You had a phone call with Vladimir Putin on July 23rd. Did you bring up this issue? No, that was a phone call to discuss other things. And frankly, uh, that's an issue that uh, many people said was uh, fake news. Who said that it was, was fake fault. news? I think a lot of people, uh, if you look at some of the wonderful folks from the Bush administration, uh, some of them, not any friends of mine, were saying that it's a fake issue. But a lot of people said it's a fake issue. There was well, we had a call. We had a call talking about nuclear proliferation, which right. is a very big subject, where they would like to do something, and so would I. We discussed numerous things. We did not discuss that, no. And you've never discussed it with him? I have never discussed it with him, no. We well, would. I'd have no problem with it. But you don't believe but you know, the intelligence. It never it's because you don't believe the intelligence. That's why. Uh, everything, you know, it's interesting. Nobody ever brings up China. They always bring Russia, Russia, Russia. It goes on for a little bit, a while like this. Um, so he, he says that uh, he hasn't talked to Putin about, I'm just trying to imagine a democratic president. Yeah, I didn't talk to the Russian leader who put a, a price on the heads of American soldiers. I don't believe the intelligence. Um, it, it just, it's not that important to me. Let's talk about something else. If any, if Jimmy Carter or Barack Obama or Bill Clinton did something like this, I think it would be a regular drumbeat at, at Fox News. Um, are we not doing such a good job on the liberal media in calling it out? Or is it just that we already know he's terrible and so it just doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to anyone? It's true. There's a disconnect between how uh, this would be handled if it was any of the presidents you mentioned. I mean, President Obama with the birther uh, you know, argument was blamed for something that wasn't even true. And it was used and blown up into something big. Here's something very... Uh, accurate to the president's own words about intelligence and his lack of care. And the strongest response is often from like the Lincoln Project, which is Republicans uh, who are tougher with him uh, than many Democrats are. So I can't explain why the ultimate message about something this stunning doesn't get out. Um, but it's notable. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine even a former Republican, frankly, uh, kind of president getting away with something like this. So what is the answer? Is it the Lincoln Project? Maybe they can hit the Republican amygdala in a way that Democrats can't. How do you get uh, Republicans to put down the Kool-Aid? I believe, I predict, I pray that President, the next president will be Joe Biden and he'll be our president uh, very soon. And then I think Republicans will have collective amnesia, kind of like no one can remember voting for Richard Dixon anymore, even though he won a, a massive majority in 72. They'll be like, yeah, no, I never really liked the guy. I liked the judges of the tax cuts. I think that's coming a year from now. But how do you break the, the image in one of these folks' mind watching Fox News that I believe everything I read? Is there any way to get folks to listen to logic and reality? I think it's very hard. I think the only real change that you'll see in the Republican Party is a series of devastating elections that not only handle hand Democrats power, but reveal a shrinking Republican Party uh, to the point where it's no longer possible to imagine winning again. Uh, I, I think when you have a party that's this locked into this mentality, even Donald Trump losing, President Trump losing office in 2020 won't be enough. You're going to need a series of elections where Republicans feel desperate. And then what would happen, it, you'd either have younger Republicans emerge uh, to argue for a different way, 
And some senior Republicans will say it's no longer, we have to speak to our voters in a different way and we have to kind of push them in a different direction. But that's tough, uh, given how the electoral college works, given how voting restrictions work, given questions if President Trump's somehow going to try to delay the election. Um, it's going to take a lot of work to get there. The point of my book is that this is cooked into the party. And put aside President Trump, the Tea Party was doing a lot of this just a few years earlier. So this doesn't go away very easily. And voters aren't going to all of a sudden wake up to the idea, Republican voters, that this is all just a big mistake. How will Mitt Romney be remembered? It's amazing to me that the two prior Republican nominees, John McCain and Mitt Romney, have been, well, John McCain was and, and Mitt Romney is, the, the most outspoken critic of Donald Trump. Uh, will Mitt Romney be remembered as a profile encouraged by historians 50 years from now? I'm not so sure about that. They'll, they'll clearly receive credit both uh, him and McCain for saying something, for actually being vocal about their opposition. But I suspect more interesting will be how these two uh, politicians were actually part of this very rightward Republican Party. They'll also remember McCain picking Sarah Palin as his running mate and opening the doors again to this form of conservative politics. They'll remember Mitt Romney, who in 2012, 2012 ran a very right-wing campaign, despite who he is, despite what he actually believes in. And I think that will be as interesting as these moments encourage, to be honest. And that's when you start to uncover what's happened to this party. So is the heart of it the fear of the primary? The heart of it is that uh, the Bob Corkers or Jeff Flakes of the world, the people who are very conservative but aren't conspiracy theorists, uh, you know, crazy town, that that they're losing and, and therefore the, their party isn't with them. And so Lindsey Graham realizes that, that he has to do a complete flip-flop just to get reelected? Is it fear of the Republican voter that's causing this? Yes. I mean, I think re Republican leaders have created a party that's quite strong, even if it's small, and has a big infrastructure of information, meaning the conservative media. And if you ask, why don't more Republicans abandon President Trump? The answer is they'll lose. They'll lose their seats. And they know that. Most voters in the GOP support President Trump. Uh, and they support Trumpism. And they support this vision of the GOP. Uh, so it's a cycle where it's hard for a politician who genuinely thinks maybe this is the wrong direction right now to get out of that. Uh, he won't or she won't survive the process. And of course, we see people like George Will, the Lincoln Project, again, conservative folks trying to reclaim their party. Where, and again, you are a historian, where do you see 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now, how will the Trump era be described? I think it'll be the end of a long period where the Republican Party built the coalition, but then started to shrink and started to dive in and dig in to an approach that just didn't have widespread appeal and depended on institutional props, basically, like the Electoral College to survive. And I don't think it will be looked at favorably. I think President Trump has exposed some of the ugliest elements of Republican politics. And I think that's what we're going to remember. How did it end up being a party that could have a president appealing to white backlash politics and nativism openly? Uh, and how is defending that? Defending the Confederacy. I mean, <laughs> against America. I mean, um, 
Well, will Republicans go the way of the Whigs? Is this something that could actually kill the Republican Party, or is it just going to have to be totally remade with a new generation of people? Maybe after Donald Trump loses, some politician in 2022 says, I reject Trumpism. Uh, I'm a different kind of conservative, you know, maybe old line conservative, George Will conservative. Is it, it's it's going to be a new generation to take new over. New generation. I think younger generation, not George Will generation. And it can't be the Tucker Carlson's of the party. It has to be others who don't only believe in a, a, a somewhat more moderate approach to conservatism, but also believe that governance matters and that ultimately you can't have such a destructive approach to politics. And maybe some will learn the lesson from the pandemic of what happens uh, when a party embraces this philosophy. So it won't be folks like Justin Amash because he it won't be libertarians uh, to, to save the Republican Party? Hard for third parties to flourish. We just don't have a lot of examples of this happening. So I, I think you're going to have internal building. It will be Amash's who stay in the party and are able to build a stronger coalition. But he's pretty conservative, too. Uh, so, so I think you just need a fundamentally different outlook on, on what American conservatism means and how it should be practiced before you hit the point that you're talking about. So we only have about 30 seconds left. I'm still going to ask you one really big question. What is the role of racism in Trumpism? It's a big part. Uh, I think it's hard to dispute. This is a part of the electorate. It's not everything. But we have a president who plays to white backlash politics. And there's a lot of Republicans who do the same. And as long as that's happening, it's hard to say that's not part of the Republican coalition. Professor Julian Zelzer, we could talk for hours more. Uh, his book is Burning Down the House, New Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Check it out.